Would you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5? John chapter 5. Last week we saw Jesus, as Christian mentioned, healing a man on the Sabbath, which upset the Jews. And then Jesus made them even more mad uh, when he justified his actions by claiming equality with God. And so for the Jewish audience there, it just went from bad to worse when he said that. He had committed blasphemy. And so this whole section that we're moving into is Jesus' response to that. So they're upset. And how will Jesus respond to their reaction? So John 5, we'll begin in verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. For whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
This is a high section of Christology showing us the doctrine and nature of Christ. All of Christ's words recorded for us in these 28 verses. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would drive home the truth of this word into our hearts. There are complex things that you are saying, and we want to we want to hear and we want to have ears to understand, to hear and understand, eyes to see the beauty and glory that you are. So we ask for your help to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, um, in a book called Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Last Straw, the main character is a young boy named Greg who writes the following in his journal. So Greg is nine or ten. Greg says this. You know how you're supposed to come up with a list of resolutions at the beginning of the year to try to make yourself a better person? Well, the problem is it's not easy for me to think of ways to improve myself because I'm already pretty much one of the best people I know. <laughs> so this year, my resolution is to try and help other people improve. <laughs> but the thing I'm finding out is that some people don't really appreciate it when you're trying to be helpful. <laughs> After I reminded my mom for like the billionth time to stop chewing her potato chips so loud, she made a really good point. She said, everyone can't be as perfect as you, Gregory. And from what I've seen so far, I think she's right. <laughs> oh, that little glimpse into the human heart is exactly the kind of self-centered, self-righteous, self-worship that Jesus is confronting in this passage. Okay. You may recall last week that Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders just came unglued because he supposedly broke one of their man-made laws. And verse 18 tells us that they were trying all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So how will Jesus respond? How will he go about clarifying who he is so that there is no misunderstanding? How does he correct their self-righteous attitudes. How will he correct our own self-righteous attitudes? Our own self-sufficiency, our own love of pleasure, our own love of people's approval. And what we'll see is that embedded in Jesus' response is an invitation. So cool. It's an invitation. It's an invitation out of our self-selfishness, out of our self-pity, out of our lingering self-righteousness that we may have. And so here's what I hope we learned from this passage. It's the main point. Seeing Christ as the divine Son of God summons us to marvel at His glory and believe His words. And oh, we want to see Him that way, right? We want to see Him rightly as He truly is. The Jews saw him, but they didn't see him, right? They saw him, but they didn't really see him with the eyes of the heart. We don't want that to happen to us. They understood at least that he was claiming equality with God, but they rejected that claim. So, verse, uh, so Jesus spends 28 verses reinforcing that claim and the eternal significance that it has for them and for us. So here's sort of the roadmap of where we're going today. So Jesus, first, he makes this claim to divine authority. Second, he calls several witnesses to the stand to testify to his claim to divine authority. And third, he calls his listeners and us to respond to that claim. Because we must respond. 
So let's see him afresh this morning as this divine son of God, as God taking on flesh. Why? Because when we see him rightly, it will summon our worship. It will summon us to marvel at his glory, to honor him as God, to believe and embrace his words, and in so doing, have the life that he promises us in this passage. Point number one, Jesus' claim to divine authority. Now, from time to time, skeptics will say, you know, Jesus never made any direct claims to actually being God. He was perhaps a good man, a very moral and upright man, but it was actually his followers that later ascribed deity to him. Um, But the the idea, this is one of these locations, this passage is one of these locations in Scripture where it just couldn't have been any clearer that Jesus was claiming equality with God. He's claiming to be God, to be one with God the Father, to, to have all authority. And he explains that he is distinct from the Father and yet submits to the Father while at the same time making it clear that he is equally God and therefore bears the authority of God. So this is, a, this is a deep and important section of Scripture so that we understand Jesus rightly. He is both submitted to God the Father as His Son, and He is equal with God the Father in His essence and nature. So let's look at those two things. Submitted to God, equal with God. First, submitted to God. If you look at verse 19, Jesus says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Which, of course, means that he can see what the Father is doing because the Father shows him what he's doing, verse 20. He's also been given authority to grant life, verse 21, and authority to execute judgment, verse 27. All of this happens because he's submitted to the Father. And Jesus says, in verse 30, that he can do nothing of his own accord. Also, because he's submitted to his Father. He is seeking his Father's glory. He says in verse 36 that the Father has given him works to accomplish, and that when he accomplishes those works, it will prove that the Father sent him and he obeyed. Then in verse 43, he tells us he didn't come in his own name, but he came in his Father's name. All of these passages, see, show that Jesus is perfectly submitted to God the Father. In fact, the very language of father and son underscores the role relationship within the Trinity. So within the Trinity, we we see that God is both father, son, and Holy Spirit. Distinct in person and function, but one in essence. And we're getting a glimpse of that in the relationship between the son and the father. So God the Father and God the Son are not like co-captains of a football team or co-stars of a TV show. They are are equal in essence, but they are distinct as their person. The Father sends the Son. The, The Son is not said to send the Father. The Son submits to the Father. The Father does not submit to the Son. This Father-Son language is not an incidental metaphor that can be substituted with some other suitable metaphor. Rather, it's a role relationship that existed, now think about this, in eternity past. Think about that. It is a role that existed in eternity past. God did not become a father when Jesus was born. God the Father has always been God the Father, and God the Son has always been God the Son. 
God the Father has, it says in the beginning of John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Not became the Word. The Word didn't suddenly come into being because before it did not exist. No, the Word was eternally pre-existent. And as Jesus will pray in John 17.24, you loved me before the creation of the world. See, again, we see this role relationship within the Trinity. John 3.16 even says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Nicene Creed uses this language when it, it says that Christ was begotten, not made. And when it says that, it's, it's speaking of Jesus, what theologians call the eternal procession from the Father. In other words, the Father didn't create the Son at some point in eternity past. The, the God as triune has always existed. There was never a time when the Son did not exist. But Jesus, it, it could be said, eternally proceeds from the Father and is therefore submitted to the Father. And here's how the early church fathers compared it. So early church fathers being three, 200 AD to 600 AD. Um, I'm going to bring out an early church father. Not really. But the early church fathers compared it to a lamp. Now, they didn't have a flashlight, but the analogy still works. So they compared it to a lamp. And um, with a lamp, the, the, there's a light, there's a source that's creating the light, but then there's light that's radiating out from this lamp, right? And so w what they said was, if you have a lamp, it, its brightness radiates from, out from it. So the sun radiates out from the Father, proceeds from the Father. In other words, the light that radiates out is distinct from the lamp, but it can't be separated from it. We can't remove the lamp and the light beam still exists. No, it, it is, it's distinct from the lamp, but it can't be separated from it or exist apart from it. And so the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. He proceeds from the Father even as he is distinct from the Father. And yet, here's the most amazing part of that, that his divine submission and eternal procession from the Father never minimizes his divine equality with the Father. Now that's important for all kinds of role relationships and everything else the Bible is going to hang on the way the, Father the way the Father sends the Son and the Son submits to the Father. That divine submission to the Father never minimizes divine equality with the Father. And so we see part B, he is equal with God as well. Now the Jews would have agreed, for example, that only the Father can raise the dead. They're good with that. They believe that. But in verse 21, Jesus said the Son gives life to whom he will. Then in verse 22, not only does Jesus grant life, but the Father has given him the authority to pronounce judgment. Also, something only God can do. Then in verse 23, we learn that anyone who doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father. Which means, honoring the Son equals honoring the Father. In verse 25, even the dead hear the voice, not merely of the Father, notice, but the voice of the Son. Since the Father has given the divine prerogative of judgment to the Son. So, in verse 26, the Father has life in himself, but Jesus adds, and the Son has life in himself. I mean, think about that. Contrary 
to modern popular opinion. You, you will not find life in yourself. Did you know that? You will not find true life and contentment and peace and joy by looking within. You cannot generate life on your own. Every breath you breathe is granted to you by God. The earth that you walk upon is a gift that God has placed under your feet to sustain you. We are contingent, dependent creatures that are needy and in need of another source to grant life to us, to keep our hearts even beating. We do not have life in ourselves. Jesus does have life in himself. And he's able to grant that life whenever he wants. That's an attribute that belongs to God alone. We don't grant life to people. And that is exactly what Jesus is claiming about himself. That he can do that. Then in verse 27, Jesus refers to himself with this title, Son of Man. And the context here is executing judgment. And so, for a Jew knowledgeable in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel would immediately come to mind. Because in the book of Daniel, there's this phrase about the Son of Man who would be given the kingdom, who will execute judgment, and who will reign for all eternity. Daniel chapter 7. It's obvious that was not going to just be another human king. But this Son of Man in Daniel would be both God and man and would bring judgment. So that's the promise in Daniel, now look at verse 27. Jesus says, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he, meaning Jesus, is the Son of Man. Jesus is, Jesus is saying, that Son of Man that Daniel talked about? Yeah, that's me. I, that Son of Man has arrived on the scene and I am he. It's an astonishing claim. Now, what is the point of all of this? Why is Jesus pressing home his divine identity? Well, the answer is in verse 20, second part of the verse. Where Jesus says, In greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So that you may marvel. There are greater works that he will do, so that you, we, may marvel. Marvel. Now, what could those greater works be? Well, verse 21 tells us he promises to raise the dead. And certainly, as John continues to show us, the greatest miracle of all is when those who are dead in sin hear the voice of Christ calling them and he causes them to respond. That's the greater work that Jesus is referring to. Do you see your salvation as the greatest work Jesus could ever do for you? The greatest work of all. Do you marvel at your salvation? And let me encourage you, you don't have to have a, a jail record to marvel at your own salvation. The Lord saved me at 10 years old. There was a time when God opened my eyes to see my sinful state. And I'm so thankful that he saved me at a young age. He must have known how much I would have wrecked my life if he had not got a hold of me as soon as he did. I marvel that God saved me when he did, and I am deeply thankful for it. Do you marvel at your own salvation? As Pastor Billy so poignantly put it last week in this question, if Jesus could remove your suffering but leave you in your sin, would you take him up on that offer? That is a staggering way to put it. Would you be tempted to take it? 
And if so, then for you, the greater miracle might not be you having your sins forgiven. Perhaps that shows that the greater miracle for you is having your situation improved. And in which case, we have misdiagnosed our greatest problem. The Bible makes it clear which one is truly greater. It's being brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. Everything else can change. And if that doesn't happen, we die in our sins, separated from God for all eternity. But the fact that he offers that, he makes it clear that he is the one who brings us from spiritual death into spiritual life. Oh, that is a work that should make us marvel. That's a work that takes nothing short than, uh, short of the divine son of God. Equal with God and submitted to God. Only he could take on flesh and be crucified and resurrected. He could stand in the place of sinners and bear their judgment to bring them to God. He could secure their adoption as sons of God. He could guarantee for them an eternal home in the heavens with God. And because all of that is true, we have access to the very throne of God. We can ask forgiveness and receive it. We can bring him all our sickness, our sorrows, and our shame because he has carried them up the hill to Calvary and he ever stands to make intercession for us. That is the right response to seeing the divine authority of the Son of God. How do we respond when we see this? Oh, may we see it because in seeing it, we are summoned to marvel and believe his words because we see reality. In its realest form. We see true truth. But he has also been granted the authority. To execute judgment on all who would reject him. And we see that in verses 22 to 23. God's intention is that all would honor the son by hearing his word and believing him. That's the way out of judgment into eternal life. So not only does he have the authority to exact judgment on sinners for rejecting his offer of salvation, but he also has the authority to grant life to anyone who would believe in him. And there's that invitation embedded in the warning. The, The mercy and kindness of God. To call us to turn to him if you haven't turned to him. To put your faith and trust in him. To renounce trust in all other things. Oh, hear Jesus calling you to himself in this story and respond. Because seeing him for who he really is will compel our worship and compel our belief. It should compel our trust in him as well. Now just think about that. Where are you struggling to trust him right now? Perhaps you've stopped praying for something or someone because you just don't trust God to do good in the situation. You're not sure if he's going to do something bad that you're not happy with. Maybe you're holding back your heart in corporate worship. And if so, could it be that you're struggling to trust him and believe him? He as he is the divine son of God. He has all authority. It's an authority to execute judgment for all who reject him. And it's an authority that can grant life to all who would trust him and believe in him. Oh, if you're a Christian, what are some of the ways that you can express your trust in him? A couple of weeks ago, several folks came up for prayer. You know, that's a way of, these folks are saying, I am expressing my trust in God by coming and making my need known, putting myself in the place of vulnerability, of need, asking for prayer. And in so doing, that is an expression of God. I am trusting you to hear my prayers, 
to care for me and to comfort me, to pour grace into my soul through these people that you've surrounded me with. It's simple things like that are ways that we can express our trust in him. Where is he calling you to trust him more? So Jesus makes a clear claim to divine authority. In this next section, he calls in four witnesses to support this claim. So point two, witnesses testifying to Jesus' claim. Now remember, before Jesus said all this, the Jews were already seeking to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Now, put yourself in their shoes. How do you think they felt hearing him say all of this? Well, Jesus is not put off by how they're taking it. In fact, it would seem Jesus just turns up the heat as he continues to give his answer. Never backing down from this claim to be God, but instead just making it even clearer and stronger. Look at verse 31. Jesus acknowledges there that no one would accept someone's testimony as sufficient. What he's saying is that in in Jewish um, custom, everything is verified by two witnesses. So Jesus is saying, I know you would not accept my word alone, so I'm going to call in a few witnesses to the stand. So he reminds him of John the Baptist, who was born witness to this truth, verse 33. But it wasn't just John the Baptist bearing witness to Jesus as the true and divine Son of God. Look at verse 36. Jesus reminds him of his own works. In other words, just the miracles and the works that Jesus had performed right in front of their faces. Those things testified to the fact that Jesus truly does have power and authority over all things. That he can forgive sin. That he is truly the Son of God. Then in verse 37, the Father himself is called to the witness stand to testify to Jesus' divine nature and authority. So John the Baptist explicitly pointed to it. The works and miracles that Jesus performed implicitly affirmed it. And here it's the Father himself who is bearing witness to it. And then finally, and most soberingly, it's the scriptures that will bear witness to Jesus' true nature and identity. It's those same scriptures that will pronounce judgment on those who do not believe. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think... That in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is making it very clear that the Old Testament bears witness about himself. He is the fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel in the conversation with the two men on the road to Emmaus and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But again, the Jews missed it. As obsessed as they were with the Old Testament scriptures, they missed the entire point. So how can the scriptures, God's Bible, the Old Testament, the, un, the disclosure of who he is, how can that be f- function for us as a way to see Christ? See, this will affect how we read our Bibles. We don't want to be guilty of reading our Bibles and being told by Jesus at the end of our days, you search the scriptures in vain thinking that in those words and in the stuff of scripture, you might find eternal life. But the point of all of that stuff and content was to get you to me and you missed it. We don't want to be guilty of that. So John Piper uh, describes the Bible as a window. So I'm going to have another uh, prop here. So imagine with me that this is a window. 
Okay, it's, it's just a window. And um, suppose you're in a chalet in the Swiss Alps. This is an analogy he uses. And there's a massive picture frame window overlooking the beauty and glory of the Alps. So do we have something? Okay, so here's the Alps. We're in the chalet. This is the window, and it's overlooking the beauty and the glory of the, of the Swiss Alps. And you can sit in front of that window for hours and just be captured by the beauty that is you're looking at through that window. And using that analogy here, we might say the Jews had gotten caught up in the window itself and missed the beauty and glory that the window was meant to show them. So they became enamored with uh, the beautiful wood casing around the window and the tint and the clarity of the glass and the quality cock job around the window itself. And they began to analyze it and maybe even scrape glass samples that they could send to a lab to determine the exact composition of the glass that was there. All the while missing the beauty that's on the other side of the window. They had become caught up and infatuated with the window itself and missed the beauty and glory on the other side. In fact, because they loved the window so much, they built a barricade around the window to protect it and to keep people from touching it or breaking it because for them, the window had become an end in itself. It was no longer the means through which you behold the glory and wonder of God. The scripture is like that window It is in the scripture that we behold the beauty and glory of God. It is the window through which we see these things. Do you realize it's possible to know and understand and study and memorize scripture and not be captured by the beauty and glory of God? Jesus is saying scripture, in particular the Old Testament, is like that window. The Jews had stared at the window and failed to see the main thing the window was trying to show them. I can get caught up in this error too. It's possible to take an interest in scripture and theology without letting the beauty and glory of Christ really capture my attention and affection. And guys, I'm telling you, the danger is subtle and pervasive. It will appear like a genuine pursuit of God, but if that pursuit is not impacting my daily life, if it's not realigning my affections, if it's not shaping my attitude towards my wife and kids, I am missing the point. The Bible is meant to show me the glory of Christ and to arrest my affections and realign my passions. But often I won't let that happen because like the Jews in this story, I can get more in love with knowledge that puffs me up. I can be more attracted to the glory that I can gain from people. The feeling of superiority that I have because I know more than someone else because I read more books or have this knowledge. It is, it is a subtle danger because it looks, like, it looks like love for God's word and God's truth, but really what's at the heart of it is love for self and, and people's approval. All the things Jesus is warning about. How about you? How do you approach scripture? How can Jesus' words here make a difference for you? We want Jesus' words to make a difference for us. And they can. Michael Reeves is helpful in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He writes the following. We can open our Bibles for all sorts of odd reasons. As a religious duty, an attempt to earn God's favor. Or thinking that it serves as a moral self-help guide. 
a manual of handy tips for effective religious lives. That idea is actually one main reason so many feel discouraged in their Bible reading. Hoping to find quick lessons for how they should spend today, people instead find a genealogy or a list of various sacrifices. And how could page after page of histories, descriptions of the temple, instructions to priests affect how I rest, work, and pray today? Oh, but when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals the father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read not so much asking what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him and through the pages you get caught up in the wonder of his story. You find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you would have never, you never had, would have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. Oh, may we read the scriptures and get caught up in the wonder of his story. Seeing him clearly for who he is. Marveling at his glory. Believing him. Believing him with greater, ever increasing faith. Will we do this? We can do this. This is, we're getting into it, but our third point is, is our response to Jesus' claim. How will we respond? Jesus presses this issue even further and shows us our options for our response. We see this in verses 41 to 47. And Jesus just gets right to the heart of the issue in verse 40 when he says, Yet you refuse to come to me. And this is the first of similar expressions that Jesus will use in later chapters. So he, he pins it on him. You refuse to come to me. See, it's not that they just were driving down the road and were distracted on their phone and missed the exit. Like, oh, whoops, I'm, you, you just missed the exit. Just make a U-turn and you'll get back on track. No, they refused to come to him. It wasn't mere ignorance that provokes Jesus' judgment. He makes it clear, you refuse. You're more interested, he tells them in verse 41 and 45, in the glory that comes from people. And Jesus is saying, I don't play that game. That's not how I roll. So you refuse to come to me because you're more worried about what people are going to think of you if you do. And verse 42, he tells them, you don't have a true love for God. Why? Again, because they were just more interested in the love and acceptance that comes from people. He tells them that you'll receive other messengers, messengers who will play that, this game by these rules. I don't do that. And because that's how they operate, they won't receive Christ. Jesus is making a profound point here. Think, so track this with me. This is a profound point. These people are indeed glory seekers, right? They're seeking glory for themselves, and they're trying to get it from other people. There's a certain glory, you might say, when they are praised by others. So when they feel down about themselves, they turn to people for their acceptance and approval and comfort. But Jesus comes, and in the gospel, all of that gets turned around. Life is found in seeking the glory of the only God, verse 44. The heart of unbelief is looking for things that only God can give and trying to find them in something or someone other than God. Okay? It's essentially not believing that God can give what only he can give and choosing instead to find what only God can give 
in something or someone else who could never deliver what only God can give. Are you following that? And we do this every time we sin, don't we? Sin is refusing to come to Jesus to have life. It's looking elsewhere for life and joy and comfort. Self-justification, satisfaction, healing, forgiveness, all of these things. Where are you looking for things elsewhere for things that only God can give you? Where are you more concerned about the glory that comes from people? The attention, the approval, the acceptance. Where are you more concerned about those things than the glory that God alone deserves? See, God does not share the spotlight. The Jews had made the sacred scriptures all about themselves. They had turned it into a spiritual competition about who can be more righteous. In the words of Greg Heffley, he might have said that I pretty much am the best person I know. That, that's how they, they use the scriptures to get there. How do you use the scriptures to boost your own pride? But they did. And so that reminder, that warning should concern us. We should be diligent about our own hearts and our own approach to the scripture. Lest we fall into the same trap. And Because Jesus condemns them for this. So has your outward pursuit of God, if you're honest, really become just... A pursuit of approval from others. It's easy to do. And it's something Jesus is calling us to guard against. Finally, could there be something in the Bible that you've placed your hope in? That you shouldn't be placing your hope in? For the, for the Jews, Jesus was addressing it. Uh, it was Moses that they had placed their hope in. So look at verse 45. Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses on whom you've set your hope. Wow, what, what pr- profound words. Jesus is telling them, Moses was a pointer, but y'all have made Moses the point. In other words, the law was given to show us our sin and our need for a savior. The law is not an end in itself, but they made it that. And Jesus tells them that the very thing they, would, they were placing their hope in, hope in would actually be the thing that condemns them. So, how have you placed your hope in something that will in the end actually condemn you and not save you. This is the snare of legalism and law keeping. We focus so hard on doing right things, often as defined by, more by Christian culture than by Christian scripture. And we begin to measure ourselves by those standards. And we ultimately find our justification in our performance of those standards. We can parent this way. We can push our kids to meet these certain standards. And then we stamp that onto God. God must accept me because uh, he must accept me more. He must love me more because we're meeting these certain spiritual KPIs, the key performance indicators of the spiritual life. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Therefore, God must love me more. God must accept me more. We stamp these KPIs onto God. And then the next step, it doesn't stop there, does it? Because of the wickedness of the human heart, we stamp those same standards onto other people. And we demand that they live up to those. We apply the same metric to them. And Jesus would come to us in that and say, no, you're setting your hope on something that would actually condemn you because you will never be good enough to make God like you and accept you. The heart of the gospel is that you are not good enough. You are sinful and I am sinful and I deserve God's wrath. But Jesus came. There is one 
who is both fully God and fully man, and by nature of his divine authority, he perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements and yet was crucified as a criminal sinner so that we would never have to experience divine judgment that we deserve. Oh, that's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel shatters our attempts at self-righteousness and law-keeping and legalism, seeking to obtain God's favor and acceptance through our performance. Okay, don't mistake legalism for discipline. The Bible commands us to discipline ourselves and to say no to sin. Biblical legalism is seeking to gain God's favor, acceptance, and approval through our performance. And that is something we can all fall prey to. Jesus came to shatter that notion in our hearts and bring us to God. There is better news. There is a better way. And if you are still maybe depending on your own performance to make God like you and accept you, oh, abandon that false hope. Don't set your hope on that. Set your hope on this divine son of God who as fully God and fully man stood in your place as sinner on Calvary and absorbed the wrath of God in himself so that you could be brought to God so that you would not experience his judgment of your sin. He took the judgment for you so that by placing your faith in him, he brings you to God the father. You can come to him and do that no matter how old you are. As I said, that happened for me at 10 years old. God opened my eyes and he granted the life that Jesus is talking about. And he can do that right now for any one of you. So, to wrap this all up, as you look at this passage, are you seeing him? Are you seeing his wonderful divine authority? Are you picking up all that he's laying down in these 28 verses? Because he is claiming full authority as a divine son of God. And if we would see this, oh, how we would marvel more deeply and trust him more completely. So, Eric, you can bring the team and let's close with a song. I want to ask you a few questions. Where do you find yourself bored with the worship of God? Where do you find yourself bored with the worship of God? Where do you find yourself struggling to sustain faith in God? Well, we need to see him and be captured by the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as he gives us himself in these verses. Because seeing him for who he really is summons our faith and belief. It summons us to marvel at him. It summons us to worship him. And we place our hope in him alone. Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do this for us, that you would uh, open our eyes to peer through the window of scripture to see you for who you truly are to see your beauty your wonder your glory and to be captured by it um, Lord not to get distracted and hung up with other things that fall short of seeing you and beholding you and delighting in you God we want to be people who see you for who you are and in seeing you as the divine authoritative son of God we would be summoned to marvel and to believe all that you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.